This podcast is supported in part by Deseret Book, with two new books about the story of women voting in Utah. Thinking Women features photographs of Utah's women suffragists at work. Her Quiet Revolution is a fictionalized retelling of the life of Martha Hughes Cannon, the first woman in America elected to a state senate. In 1892, a woman named Margaret Salisbury spoke to the territorial legislature of Utah. She came with a big ask. In behalf of the women of Utah, thousands of petitioners have sent their appeals for an appropriation of $100,000 to properly represent our territory at the World's Fair in Chicago. Her speech is read by an actor. $100,000 is a lot of money, $2.8 million today. But the World's Fair was going to be huge. The industrial and artistic achievements of American women were going to be on display at a woman's building. With a little money, Utah women could create some gorgeous silk and publish books about Utah. They could set up a spectacular display at the Utah Pavilion. They could travel to Chicago. The women of Utah wish to make the best possible showing of their achievements in every line of labor, educational, artistic, literary, benevolent, economic. The women of Utah will meet their sisters of the different states and territories in a manner highly creditable to the energy, intelligence, and talent which characterize the women of the West. Then Margaret Salisbury explained why Utah women were unusual. Of the women of Utah, there are 12 who have published books. Two newspapers are published by women. The Salt Lake Tribune, The Herald, The Standard of Ogden employ women writers. I love this speech. Utah women were working, and they were proud of their participation in the labor force. There are lawyers and physicians, also thoroughly educated women teachers in the public and denominational schools. And then, Margaret Salisbury sneaks in this kicker about one way in which Utah is totally different from any other state or territory. We would add that women pay a fair proportion of the taxes. Since the official end of polygamy two years earlier, Utah was full of female-led households. In consideration of the earnest work being done in all these branches by women, we again urgently request that the legislature will generously enable Utah to make a creditable exhibit of her wondrous products and industries at the World's Fair in 1893. Women in Utah didn't like how people outside of the Great Basin thought of them. They saw in the World's Fair in Chicago a chance to flip the script. I'm Diana Douglas, and this is Zion's Suffragists, a podcast from the Deseret News about how Utah pioneered voting rights for women in the United States. If you missed the first episodes, here's a quick recap. Women in Utah first began voting in 1870, 50 years before most women in America, but the U.S. government took the vote away from them, ostensibly trying to end polygamy within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Women in Utah began a long campaign to get the vote back. Today, how they did it in Chicago and beyond. A World's Fair was a 19th century invention by Prince Albert 
of Great Britain, and he wanted something that could bring together all of the best minds, the innovators, the thinkers, the inventors. That becomes the kind of example or the model for other countries to follow, like, oh, we want to do this too. We want to show off what our countries have done in terms of technology. So, so it's like South by Southwest. Yeah. They become these massive events. You know, this is where the Eiffel Tower came from, yeah, right? That's so that's one of the fairs of the 19th century, the Paris Exposition. Andrea Radke-Moss is a historian of women in the West in 19th and 20th century America and an expert on the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. It was going to be the biggest, greatest World's Fair of all time. The fair organizers, fair planners have been wanting to do this as a 400th anniversary commemoration of Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of America. So, So how many people come to this World's Fair? They estimate around, um, I think, 30 million is the estimate. They 30 million know. people in the United States of America? Well, uh, globally, because well, people came from other nations as well. They estimate possibly like one out of every three Americans went to the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. A lot of people went, and famous people went. I mean, it's, there's like a long list of famous people who made an appearance at the Chicago World's Fair. Let's see. Frederick Douglass, Alexander Graham Bell, Helen Keller... Buffalo Bill, Harry Houdini, Ida B. Wells. And at this fair, women would take center stage. In the years before this, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the famous women's rights activists, had created national and international councils of women. They got an offer from a World's Fair organizer. Would you like to hold your annual meeting, your Congress, in conjunction with the World's Fair? Yes, they would. Women would come to Chicago from all over the world to plan equal rights, and Utah women were in. They had become very active members of these national and international groups. They are invited to come and do a session at this fair. This is a big deal in 1893 for for them to get this kind of a public venue. And they just have so much at stake here because they feel like... They must have just been so isolated for so long in Utah. I mean, you know, for 40 years. Yeah. So Mormon women know what the stereotypes are about themselves. They know that they're they're portrayed as these degraded women that are dragged around by their hair and they're oppressed. And so they know that this is a PR opportunity. This is an opportunity to go to Chicago and to portray their own people and their own culture as progressive and advanced, assimilated, patriotic. But the Utah legislature didn't give Margaret Salisbury the money. Utah was still reeling from the Edmonds-Tucker Act. A lot of men were in jail or in hiding, on missions, or had fled to Mexico. Women in Utah would have to get the money the old-fashioned way. Fundraisers, dinners, donations. They were determined to make a grand showing at the Chicago World's Fair. So they had their dinners and raised enough money to bring a spectacular collection of Utah women's handiwork to the fair, including enormous white silk curtains, portiers that opened the great hall of the women's exhibit, embroidered with the Utah flower, the sago lily. So if Mormon women are wearing and displaying silk, it lends itself to that image that they're trying to portray, that we're not these degraded country bumpkin polygamous wives. Look at how kind of assimilated we are into this larger 
kind of Victorian refinement. They also put together a Utah building, showing off Utah's mining wealth and other wonders of the West. Two young women were assigned from Utah to come out, and then they would just sit there and weave silk all day. And then the visitors to the Utah building could just walk by them as kind of a live exhibit. That was cool. And then the Women's Congress. Susan B. Anthony wanted one of her close friends to preside over the conference for a day. She chose Utah's leading suffragist, Emmeline B. Wells. Emmeline was editor of the suffrage newspaper in Utah. She was an expert at turning women into voting rights activists. High-profile suffrage activists and leaders went to the Mormon women's meeting. I mean, they were in attendance. You know, Susan B. Anthony is there. So it's this interesting dynamic where... You now have the stage. We want to hear you talk. That had never happened before. A young doctor named Martha Hughes Cannon spoke about how women had built a society from the ground up in Utah. She was stunning. The Chicago Record called her one of the brightest exponents of women's cause in the United States. Another leader of the suffragists in Utah, Emily S. Richards, spoke that day about the wild history of women in Utah voting. Here's part of her speech read by an actor. Women's suffrage was conferred by an act of the Legislative Assembly in 1870. This privilege was taken away by an act of Congress in 1887. Though repeated efforts have been made to restore the franchise, they have thus far been unavailing, as Congress has the exclusive power to change the law. Emily Richards was incensed about losing the right to vote. She had formed the Utah Women's Suffrage Association, an outpost of the National Women's Suffrage Association. Then she formed local suffrage associations in every little town in Utah. Restoring the right to vote for women was her life's mission. In front of a crowd at the World's Fair in Chicago, Emily Richards took a minute to prophesy. The sentiment in the territory favoring women's suffrage is believed to be as strong now as when we were enfranchised, and it may be confidently predicted that when the local government regains the power to do so, women will be restored to their political rights and privileges. People were just, you know, gobsmacked. They were just they boggled their mind because they'd never seen, everybody had this image of what Utah women were like, and then here they are on stage in front of you. And, the, and they would always comment, she actually looks very poised. She looks well-dressed. And they, they're, they're better looking than I thought. I mean, there's these kind of odd Mark Twain kind of comments. One of the women in the audience said if half of what she heard was true, she wanted to come to Utah and remain. Sousa Gates Young said the change in how she was treated when people found out that she was from Utah was marvelous. I see that as this important public relations miracle. After their big win at the World's Fair, Congress invited Utah to apply for statehood again. Come join the United States as a state. The women of Utah saw an opening. They could join as an equal suffrage state, like Wyoming and Colorado. If they were going to get the right to vote, if Emily Richards' prophecies were going to come true, it would be now or never. Tiffany Bowles is an educator at the Church History Museum, and she's looking at a book published in 1891. 
It's quite small, just kind of a, a little pamphlet size. It has, I think, about 20 songs in it. And uh, they were written by Utah women. And uh, many of them were written to be sung with tunes that people were familiar with. This is the Utah Woman's Suffrage Songbook. It was pulled out at meetings all over Utah and all over the West. The Suffrage Songbook is in the Church History Museum because it was published by the Relief Society. Other states have suffrage songbooks. I've seen like general suffrage songbooks from the era, but I haven't seen another state-specific one. The Relief Society, which is the women's organization inside the Church of Jesus Christ, turned out to be the perfect vehicle for organizing women into activists. Send out all these newspapers and boom, you've already got like this little Relief Society of 20 people in Northern Cache Valley and boom, we're all suffrage activists. And other states didn't have that. Pray for the right to vote. Sing about the right to vote. Plan with neighbors and friends how to get back the right to vote. In the rest of the country, getting women and men to support equal voting rights was a slow, tedious slog. In Utah, women's right to vote was religion. Getting back the right to vote was a full-time, all-hands-on-deck mission for the women in Utah by the 1890s. They were working for one goal, get it written into the new state constitution. Susan B. Anthony wrote a letter to Emmeline Wells, which was published in the Woman's Exponent and other newspapers, and she was just saying, whatever you do, you cannot have suffrage left out when the state constitution is formed. This is historian Catherine Kitterman. She's a PhD candidate at American University. Here's what applying to be a state of the United States looked like. Utah would have to write a constitution, send it to Washington, and Congress would decide yes or no. Utah had tried this six times before, so they knew the drill. 107 men were elected from all over Utah to write the constitution. The women got to work on all 107 delegates. Put equal voting rights in the party platforms. Ask the men to sign a pledge. It was a massive grassroots drive. The women were pretty sure going into it that they would have widespread support. As things got closer, there were a few cracks that appeared. Why were there cracks in the men's commitment to women's suffrage in Utah? In some non-LDS circles, there was a feeling of there are a lot more Mormon women than non-Mormon women, and this will increase the Mormon church's political power. Sorry, but this has been an issue in Utah politics forever. What else? 
there were people who were worried that including women's suffrage in the Constitution would imperil the chances of statehood, that that would give Congress a reason to reject the Constitution and reject Utah statehood once again. Women really didn't vote in America. So yeah, it was risky. It's a really dramatic convention, actually. So the delegates were meeting in the newly completed city and county building, which is downtown in Salt Lake City. And women were there and were watching. Um, They couldn't speak on the floor because, of course, they weren't delegates. But they had actually prepared ahead of time that if there were any problems, they were going to go around and start circulating petitions in favor of suffrage. So they were ready. They were watching. The room was suffocating. Standing room only. Women in the galleries, silent. Men down on the floor debating. A young man from Davis County named B.H. Roberts spoke up. He was a leader of the Church of Jesus Christ, part of the governing body, the Quorum of the Seventy, and an eloquent orator. He started arguing against including suffrage in the Constitution. Emmeline Wells's eyes must have narrowed to little slits. Roberts was supposed to be on the team. Many people were ticked. Even though he'd floated these sentiments before, this kind of started a real debate back and forth. The feeling among the delegates was turning. Maybe we should worry about women's suffrage later. One of the delegates, a theologian named Orson Whitney, said some things are higher and dearer than statehood. Orson F. Whitney said that this movement of women to vote and to hold office was one of the ways that the Almighty was lifting up the fallen world and making it a better place. Women's voting rights became the biggest issue at the convention. They debated this question for a full week, and then two weeks. Women across Utah watched as their rights hung in the balance. They sent petitions to each delegate, some with thousands of signatures, and still the debate dragged on. One delegate, Franklin S. Richards, argued that equal suffrage will prove the brightest and purest ray of Utah's glorious star. His wife, by the way, was Emily Richards, making sure that her prophecies from Chicago would come true. Franklin Richards said things like, I have never known a woman who felt complimented by the statement that she was too good to exercise the same rights and privileges as a man. Franklin argued that the new constitution should simply say, the rights of citizens of the state of Utah to vote and hold office shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex, but that male and female citizens of the state shall equally enjoy all civil, political, and religious rights and privileges. After two weeks of debate, it seemed like every person in Utah had weighed in on this. The final tally was about 25,000 signatures for including suffrage in the Constitution, and there were about 15,000 asking for separate submission. All the singing, praying, signing petitions, all the mass meetings would have to stop because it was time to vote. The vote was 75 in favor, 14 against, and there were 12 people absent. Women won. Utah was going to draft a constitution and send it to Congress with these words. The rights of citizens of the state of Utah to vote and hold office shall not be denied on account of sex. Both male and female citizens of this state shall enjoy equally all civil, political, and religious rights and privileges. Next week, what happens when women can not only vote, but run against men for public office? Zion Suffragists is written by me, Diana Douglas. 
It's edited by Tracy Keck and Laurel Christensen Day. Our producer is Andrea Smartin, with production help from Adrienne St. Clair. Burke Olson is our executive producer. Our readers today were Morgan Jones and Bethany Brady Spaulding. Bethany just wrote the book, Girls Who Choose God, Stories of Extraordinary Women from Church History. Morgan Jones is host of the podcast, All In. Thanks to the Luke's Singers for bringing the Utah Women's Suffrage Songbook to life. Their recording is used courtesy of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, copyright by Intellectual Reserve Incorporated. And this is David Rojas playing the Battle Hymn of the Republic on the violin. Support for this podcast comes in part from Deseret Book, with two new titles about the revolutionaries, the rebels, and the romantics who built Utah and changed America, Thinking Women and Her Quiet Revolution. These books are available at Deseret Bookstores at DeseretBook.com and the Deseret Bookshelf app. I'm Diana Douglas. See you next week.